from two Enneagram map makers. Charting the unexplored interior landscape of the ego with Chris Hewitt. So hey, this is Chris Hewitt, and welcome back to Enneagram Map Makers, where we chart the unexplored interior landscape of the ego. Today on the show, we have Jack Labanowskis, and Jack is the, the co-founding editor of Enneagram Monthly. And so in 1995, Jack and, and Andrea Isaacs set out to begin documenting the evolution of, of this modern personality system as it was unfolding in, in real time with a lot of the early thought leaders, some of the, the, the great notable sort of celebrated authors and, and teachers and, and schools. And over, over these years with, with, with pushing close to, to 300 issues of the Enneagram Monthly now, you can kind of track the conversation. You can follow the building blocks and, and see where this was and, and, and where it's gotten to today. A couple of years ago, I actually set out to try to read every single issue of the Enneagram Monthly. And uh, these were sprawled all over the bar and my kitchen table. I, I spent several days just sort of bending my brain on this. And, you know, what was amazing about it then and what's amazing about it now is is how honest it is. And, and, and back in the old days, some of the letters to the editors were, were furious and, and, and some of the great Enneagram fights around ideas and intellectual property ownership landed right there. You also kind of see in the Enneagram Monthly how some of the, 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 the more nuanced and esoteric and obscure ideas were, were actually developed in conversation with, with readers and, and, and authors and, 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 and the push and pull. And, and that's what I also love about this tradition is that it really is living. It really is dynamic. And I would say in a large part, a lot of that is, is attributed to the work that Jack's done through the Enneagram Monthly. So if you're not familiar with the Enneagram Monthly, um, I would urge you to subscribe as soon as possible. I think you're going to love it. But if you're not familiar with Jack Labanowskis and his work, um, he is a remarkable human being, right? He was born and, and grew up in post-World War II Germany. His parents were Lithuanian refugees who escaped just before Stalin's Iron Curtain clamped down. Uh, he speaks several languages, and he's actually given himself over to, to several various and, and almost disconnected st- schools and, and studies. Um, and, and, and what he's able to do is, is to knit these together, to bring these together in conversation. In my new book, The Enneagram of Belonging, I actually um, have a, a chapter on the passions. And on that chapter, I actually work with quite a few ideas that I've, I've come across in the old, old, sort of almost out of print archived editions and issues of the Enneagram Monthly. And so there's this bit on the counter passions, but there's this article that Jack had co-written on the um, polarities of the passions and how they're kind of like pendulum swinging back and forth between extremes. And, and what I loved about that article and that idea was, again, the, the dynamic nature of, of something that's alive, that's growing, that's not stagnant and, and, and doesn't stay or keep us stuck in, in, in these fixated sort of conditioned mental and, and emotional spaces. And, and, and that's one of the things I love about Jack is his curiosity isn't something that's just contained in his head. It's, it's lived out of his heart and, and it's put out into the world. And so in this, this book, the, the Enneagram of Belonging, I, I actually play around with some of those ideas. And then Jack, being as, as generous as he always is, sort of gave me a chance to, to sort of slip this article into the Enneagram Monthly on the contours of the passions. And Sort of in the spirit of Lil Wayne, I, I, I tried to crowdsource some ideas by putting that out into the world and really taking all the feedback from, from the readers of the monthly and, and, and some of the folks who had um, helped me edit and interact with that article to actually, I think, develop even a, a, a newer sort of updated or, or, or fresher take on the passions. But I, I'd say this, it's, it's in large credit due to Jack, the work that he does and, and that he believes in us so much so that he gives us opportunities to, to sort of play around with ideas like that. So here's my conversation with Jack Labanowskis. And I hope you find this as interesting as, as I always do every time I sit down and, and have, a, have a conversation with him. Thanks so much, Jack, for for being part of this conversation and and being willing to join me. I uh, have really, really 
treasured our, our friendship over the last few years. You've you've been really generous and and supportive, and and so this is is really an honor. So so thank you, thank you for being part of this today. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, the feeling is mutual. Your contribution is equally um, changing of direction, you know, into a good way of this whole movement. I believe. So uh, mm. I'm very grateful to you too. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. So, hey, for for folks out there who who maybe aren't familiar with you and, and your work, could you just introduce yourself a little bit and and let us know what you've been up to and and what's keeping you busy today? Well. Um, I came in contact with the Enneagram in the early 90s. Um, it was introduced by a friend, a Buddhist friend, who had gone to a Lama retreat, and he left halfway through it because he said he wanted to be more specific about his own evolution by tackling his personality traits instead of a generic, uh, you know, pursuing a generic sort of aim of uh, enlightenment and uh, improve, self-improvement. And that sounded very interesting. And so that was my beginning. And uh, he made me read the two, two or three books that existed at the time, Don Riso's Enneagram and Helen Palmer's. And um, I took to it, um, how, how do you say in English? Like a duck to water. I liked mm. it. You know, it rang a bell. And I could identify with the character traits that were described very well. Because uh, I had studied personalities and stuff like that before. Um, I started getting interested in psychology and such things when I was studying oriental medicine, the yin-yang principles. And diagnosis depended a lot on who you're talking with. So you're not looking at a disease or at a mental condition as if it was standing by itself as an entity. You look at the person and how the person is affected by it. So personality would always play a big part in that. So I had um, uh, studied graphology. I had studied if, uh, ho some homeopathy, some stuff like that. And uh, the Enneagram was uh, a real nice addition to the study of individual types. So that's how I started. And uh, after a couple of years, of uh, getting into it, there was this Stanford conference in 1994 in summer at Stanford, California. And about 1,500 people came, all Enneagrammers, and they were talking about creating a newspaper. And I heard that they wanted to create a newspaper by committee. That was a red flag for me because I was in the newspaper business doing uh, college and university papers at the time for a living. And I knew that by committee, you can't edit. Hmm. And um, so I said, let's see, they won't be able to do it, so we better start a paper. And, and uh, my partner, Andrea Isaac at the time, uh, and I, we started uh, this paper put it together, and the first issue was out in uh, 95 March. So that's my beginning with the Enneagram. And the Enneagram Monthly now, it, it's, it's, it's 25 plus years later you've been, you've been working on this. It, it really is kind of the, the sort of peer review, um, sort of maybe a little Ennean nerdy, but, but really accessible sort of um, publication out there where I – I, it, it seems like you really just make room for 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 outrageous, as well as deeply thoughtful and and fringe ideas. What have you you seen in the last twenty five years of, of of sort of curating these kinds of of, of, of thought leaders and, and and various authors? Well, what I have seen is that um, it all started out with a sort of a unified uh, assumption that was very. Uh, sketchy in the sense that there was uh, big gaps in, in the understanding. Uh, it started out from a few pages of notes. That's how this, uh, this section of the Enneagram began. Claudio Naranjo brought it from Arica, uh, where Oscar Ricciazzo was teaching that one-year course, and Claudio was part of it for about 10 months or most of it. And when he came back, he created this uh, Seekers After Truth 
SAT group in Berkeley. And that went on for a few years, and they hacked out the individual characteristics of the nine types. So they were studying that. And Claudio, at the time, was already um, a doctor in uh, psychiatry and whatnot. You know? So he, he was extremely well-qualified and a good thinker, too. So he put this together, and they were coming out with a more narrow and precise definition of types. And then the main authors of the Enneagram, like uh, Don Riso and Helen Palmer, they picked up that material, and they came up with their bestsellers. And those are the ones that introduced me to the subject. So um, I noticed that uh, um, at the time there was a lot of uh, discord in the community. There was questions about intellectual property. There were law cases and stuff. And people who had ideas, they were nervous about publishing them uh, without taking precautions so that they couldn't be sued. And uh, so people were beginning to alter. They were looking for different and new names for each type. So we have half a dozen names for every type by now. And um, they were looking for ways of describing it by using either the centers, the head, heart, and gut centers as main locations where the where three types in each resided or they were using um, you know other uh, methods of for instance calling it a defense mechanism or calling it a virtue or calling it a fixation or calling it a vice so all of these are good descriptions of a type so a, a lot of authors and thinkers who didn't have enough material to produce their own book became the bread and butter of the Enneagram Monthly because they would come up with a very good idea, which was good enough for an article, but not good enough for a book, and they needed a place to publish it. And that was before the internet became so popular. Like now we have internet. They don't need the Enneagram Monthly so much as they used to 25 years ago. So we were the only place, like the only forum, where people could express their ideas that would be reaching all the different schools of Enneagram. And there were not that many schools at the time. There were like those three, four, five schools. The Palmer, the Riso, uh, Tom Condon, uh, and a few other people. They were teaching uh, Enneagram courses, some for business, some for spirituality, others for relationship. Um, that was about it. And so the Enneagram Monthly became the archive of all that is Enneagram related. So it's, it's incredible how, how, how much content, how, how, how rich and how deep that, that content is. And, and it really is um, hospitable, hospitable of you to have made so much room for, for so many voices and, and so many ideas. Um, when you see all these things coming in, and and over the years, everything that you've sort of reviewed and read was was there things that you just couldn't publish? Like were there things that you just felt like this is so off the page that that somebody's kind of missed the point here? Well, there were some of those things, and uh, I try to weed it out in the sense that uh, uh, my main uh, pre preoccupation or main main doubt about the system would have been if people take it too far to to the la la land then 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 the system would be uh, would would become disreputable and people who were serious seekers they would shy away from it thinking that it is some kind of a new age fad that is here today gone tomorrow i could recognize the depth of it and i wanted to protect it so i made for instance the the format of the enneagram monthly uh, boring and and uh, standard, traditional, like the New England Journal of Medicine, for example. Same headlines, same type, same this, same that, nothing flamboyant and exuberant, uh, new agey, flowery, and fluffy. So I was trying to stay away from the fluff, stay away from exaggerated claims, and stay away also from rigid um, definitions that were 
designed to exclude all others. So at the same time, I was open to ideas that were contrary to my own because I figured that, uh, you know, a bird needs two wings to fly and the left and the right, they have to both operational equally in order to make a good flight. So this was the core aim of the paper of the Enneagram Monthly to present all ideas that are within a parameter of reasonable. And I think um, that's that's something pretty much that we did over the last 25 years and 248 issues so far. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and I'll say this. I um, I actually, a couple years ago, set out to, to read the entire sort of 25-plus-year archive of this, and, and it seems like you really have accomplish that you really have have made room for for almost every idea I've ever heard of um it's 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 remarkable so great work great work on that well and that included us um most ideas or many ideas I was delighted to hear them and find them and and there was a percentage where I had to hold my nose and uh, put them in anyway because I knew that some people um uh, for some people it would work because my, my um, opinion is that uh, what we assume to be a good method for growth or understanding can work for a certain kind of people. And then there are some surprising, outrageous, crazy types of uh, ideas that can come out, but they are what other people need. So some people can be helped by something that everybody else considered as considers as inferior. And uh, I wouldn't want to be standing in the way of those ideas being available to those people who might need them. We get triggered mm. in life by a certain word, a certain gesture, a certain moment where something happens and we have an aha moment about something in life. And then later when we think back, it was nothing extravagant that we heard. It was just something very common, very simple, but it made a big difference in our lives. So I wouldn't want to be um, in a position where I'm uh, preventing those things to be able to occur. Hmm. And then, of course, hmm. there's the need. Uh, I can only print material that is supplied. So we always need authors who are writing, and I'm sure there's over 100 or 150 people who have written in the Enneagram Monthly over the years. It's about 1,500 articles altogether in the last, you know, I haven't counted in the last few years, but once once for fun we did a count, and it was over 1,000. Mm. So, you've, so you've actually, in the last 25 plus years, talked to or, or interviewed or, or connected with just about anybody out there who's, who's made a significant contribution to this tradition. Um, yeah. I get kind of nerdy about the early days of this and and I get kind of like nerdy about how the the conflicted and, and contested mythology of, of of the personality system beginning sort of has gotten all tangled up and and sort of claimed by by, by the various camps can you talk about the times that that you spent with with either Oscar Echazo or Claudio Naranjo well Oscar Echazo um uh, after we started the paper uh, nobody knew who we were in the beginning. Uh, Don Riso, we knew Don Riso, and and uh, uh, we had we had read his books and Helen Palmer, etc. And uh, people thought that the Enneagram Monthly is going to be like a fly-by-night type thing that here today, gone tomorrow. And when it continued publishing a few times regularly, every month, bing, 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 was coming out, people realized that, okay, maybe there's something to it. And uh, we were inviting anybody who was anybody in the movement for interviews. So in the beginning, we had a lot of interviews. And uh, we contacted Oscar Richazo, his Rica group, and um, they said, okay. And we went there in, um, I think it was... Uh, yeah, it was a September. It was a September. We went to Maui to interview him, and we stayed there about uh, 10 days or so. 
And the interview lasted three days. We would start in the morning and we would talk until the afternoon at uh, Oscar Richazo's house. So present was Andrea Isaac and I and uh, Oscar Richazo and Sarah, his wife. So we were sitting around drinking coffee. Good coffee, by the way. Excellent. They really knew coffee, mm -hmm. I must say. Kept us going. And uh, we talked and talked. And uh, before the interview, uh, they sent us legal papers and they wanted us to submit questions. So we submitted a certain number of questions and they answered them in writing. And that was supposed to be the official interview. And then those three days that we spent with Oscar Richazo, actually, they completed the answers after those three days. But um, basically, it was something that we had to sign that we would not use, abuse, alter in any way, or reprint without permission, etc. So that was the only time that we had to go through such a rigmarole. And I understood that... Uh, Erika, at the time, they were very touchy about who plagiarizes their material or who takes Oscar Richazo's material and claims it as their own. And all the Enneagram authors, they were nervous about it and they were taking precautions in order not to be accused of plagiarism. They altered stuff. And I think that is what um, subverted a little bit a unified initial... Um, perception of what the types are, where they come from, and what the origins are, because Ichazo never revealed the total origins. He was always saying that it was like uh, Angel Gabriel or something came down and uh, gave him some intuitions. Ichazo's story is a very interesting story because Ichazo is, um, among all the Enneagram people and authors that I met, um, probably the most... Um, how shall we say, interesting character who has a lot of um, um, a lot of gravitas and weight. He studied a lot. He knew a lot of things. I mean, he knew a surprising amount of things. At some point, we started talking about Chinese medicine and acupuncture, for example, and um, um, which was my, my specialty. I had trained in it, and he knew a lot about it, much more than a lay person was supposed to know. And then we talked about um, Renaissance art in Florence because I lived 12 years in Florence and Ichazu knew a surprising amount of all the artists, you know. So I remembered most of them just by the street names of Florence because they're all called after certain important artists that they had. And Ichazu was a painter himself. He painted some stuff, but it, uh, not my cup of tea, actually, his type of paintings a lot of black and a lot of red and a lot of angular shapes in it. Anyway, so uh, we, we also had a lot of fun. Um, it was interesting because uh, he was a truly, um, how do you call it, a Renaissance-type person who knew a lot of stuff. He spoke maybe eight languages. We, he took us through a walk of his garage, which he had converted into a library. And he had something in the neighborhood of 50,000 books in it. So it was like being in a very cramped bookstore where you walk between aisles, floor to ceiling of books in multiple languages. I recognized a few of the covers, but there was a lot of material that uh, I had never seen or heard of. And he said that he stumbled onto the Enneagram symbol for the first time in a grimoire, which is a little spiritual uh, pamphlet that was um, a French grimoire. Other people, for instance, the Schmitz in France, they have uh, discovered that there's more, um, he had more connections to the Maronites and um, those Christian myst mystics like Papus, Dr. Ankaus, and others. So they, they found another lineage. Um, Ichazo, as a kid, uh, he had some strange um, episodes of, uh, not epilepsy, it was, uh, I don't know what the name of it is, and he didn't know it either, but he would be, uh, he would go for several hours, like every night, into a coma, 
and he would write the note, place it on his chest, and says, I'm only in a coma. I'm not dead. Don't bury me. He was terrified that they would find him in that state sometime at night, and they would bury him. But he would be conscious, but he couldn't move a muscle. And uh, that state disappeared when he was, I think, in his late teens or early 20s. But um, somehow it, uh, uh, it may have affected his brain, so he had an ability to have almost a photographic memory of a huge amount of materials that he had read. And he had inherited a library that was very full of mystical stuff from his uncle Julio in, in, in Bolivia. And um, he had read most of it. He devoured it. He was able to do speed reading, I think. And uh, so he put together from everything he had ever read the system of the Enneagram, and we don't know exactly where it came from. It was not exactly the Sufis, although in the beginning there was an assumption that the Sufis were the ones that, uh, that inspired the Chazo, and um, he denied it. And he also denied that it was Gurdjieff who used the symbol as a school symbol. He didn't particularly respect Gurdjieff for some reason. And um, anyway, so as far as we know, the exact origins of the Enneagram are still today unknown. And all those people who claim that uh, uh, they have, you know, that is an ancient system, etc. As it is today, it is probably not an ancient system. It is something that was put together after it. It was part of Ichazo's teaching that Claudio Naranjo took, and he elaborated and expanded it. So he magnified it, stuck it under a microscope during his SAT uh, study group in Berkeley out of which came people like uh, Almas. So he was part of that group. And also the Jesuits in Chicago, they had sent uh, uh, Bob Oakes. He was part of that group. He was in communication with people like Jerry Wagner in, in Loyola University, etc. So, And Helen uh, found some materials, I think, from one of the courses that Naranjo was doing or planning or Arika was doing and uh, the whole lawsuit that she was involved in was uh, over the material that was taken pretty much uh, out of the material that the Arika Institute was using. The judgment was interesting by the judge. It was a Salomonic type judgment. Uh, Ichazo uh, wanted to claim it as personal property, as intellectual property. And he was asked, like, are you, uh, is that fantasy or do you think that what you have is explaining what reality is, what is real? And he said, I think it is what is real. Then if that is what is, re- what is real, then you don't own it any more than two and two is four can be owned by the first person who discovered that. So that was, uh, in a sense, a victory for uh, Helen Palmer, who who said that she too came to the same conclusion. And it was also a victory for Echazo because he was acknowledged as having something that is correct, that is not a brainchild of his mind, but it is something that has to do with reality. So both claimed victory, and uh, I think that's the best outcome we could have had. Yeah. So can you talk about Ichaso's perception of the Enneagram of personality as it began to evolve from his original Enneagons? Well, Ichaso had all the books that were published on the Enneagram of personality, and he kept them in the kitchen, in his kitchen, not in the library uh, in in the garage, and uh, they were under a closed little door. He uh, he was laughing about it. He said, "This is my jail. I put them all in jail." So there was Helen <laughs> Rizzo's and 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 um, and you know whatever was published at the time. Everybody's books was in there, like a couple dozen books. Um, he did not. Uh, he, well, he thought that the Enneagram was uh, perverted 
by Claudio Narancio, and he should not have um, made it public. He broke confidentiality ideas uh, that that they had promised, like we will not uh, we will not divulge this information without giving you credit at least. Or initially, they were not supposed to divulge it at all. And um, Claudio was uh, trying to impose the same rule on his students. So when uh, Nogosek, Biesing, and O'Leary published their first little booklet of Enneagram, they were breaking the confidentiality agreement that they had with Claudio, with Claudio Sat Group. And um, they were also sued by, I think, by Erika, but they settled for something like they would give Ichazo credit for it every time they were working with that material. And that's, I think, how the Helen and Ichazo lawsuit ended up, that Helen had to uh, be sure to give credit to Oscar Ichazo for all the material that she would be using in her books that was clearly originating with Ichazo. Hmm. So I think what happened later in the years following is there was too many books coming out. There's probably a couple hundred books on the Enneagram worldwide. And I think what I heard, the biggest book with the biggest publication exists somewhere in China. Uh, It is a book translated from somebody an Australian wrote. I forget the name now. But they have like over a million copies of it buzzing around in China somewhere. So there's a lot of Enneagrammers in China nobody knows about. Enneagram map makers will continue in a moment. In Chris's book, The Enneagram of Belonging, you'll discover that knowing ourselves doesn't necessarily mean we accept ourselves. Most of us tend to curate the personality of our type, leading with the traits we perceive as positive and sidelining the traits that cause us shame. But what if it all belonged? Rather than furthering our own fragmentation, what if we dared to make peace with the whole of who we are with bold compassion? The Enneagram of Belonging is your guide to this essential journey. Get your copy today, wherever books are sold. So then about Claudio, you, you'd, you'd spent some time with Claudio, and, and, and sadly he passed away recently. Could you talk about um, your, your relationship with him and, and, and what we, you saw no, I didn't, even evolve in his work? I did not have a big relationship with Claudio at all because Claudio withdrew from America. He was disappointed in, in I think, in the American mentality. I mean, he's a Latino. He's a Chilean. You know, so he, um, he's 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 more relational, and uh, he values like personal relations more over intellectual uh, structures even though he has a very sharp intellectual mind and an extremely, well, he's extremely astute in that field as well. But he got disappointed by something or other. I don't know what the exact history was, but he moved into Europe and he was experimenting with things and with the mentality of Europe. He lived in in Spain and and in Latin America and other other European countries. And he was the first one, I think, who was bringing the Enneagram into into Russia and and other countries. So um, he removed himself for many years, and he came back for the first time, I think it was 96 or 97, when he had that course in Colorado. That was after a 20-year absence from the United States. And he would occasionally come to the United States. And I think that his move was... um, towards more towards a group effort like people working together as a, a tool for growth instead of going deeper and deeper into the weeds of um, into the weeds of the details the intellectual knowledge so he felt that the growth would occur when they have relationships it, it would be born within the relationship it would not born 
it would not be born out of a conclusion, a aha moment that you may have read somewhere. The people that I saw at his group, uh, I went the, uh, to do this interview about four or five years ago, and um, the course participants, they were, they were people who were sometimes 10, 20, 25 years with Claudio. So he had a very, very good group of uh, faithful adherents. So does it. So does Ichazo, actually. He has old-timers that have been there from the beginning. A lot of, uh, some of them were there together with Claudio in the first course in 1969 in, in Arica, Chile. So, um, from what I hear from uh, course participants that come to the IEA courses, the conferences that we have, they are very outspoken and very adamant about retyping people left and right wherever they appear. So, so that was uh, a little bit of, um, gave me pause to think like somebody who meets somebody for five minutes and then they seem to know or they claim to know better what that person's type is. That was sort of an arrogance that I thought was uh, misplaced. Um, they say also... Um, there's a saying that says, by their fruit, you can name a tree. So according to how the students end up being after having studied with somebody for a long time, that tells you what the essence of the teaching is. So if the Claudio um, people were uh, thinking that they knew better than anybody else what type is, it, on, the, on the one hand, you could say that might be true. On the other hand, it could be just that uh, they're attracted or they share a common sense of arrogance. And you could say a little bit uh, a, a similar thing about the Ridwan people, the Almas, to, uh, the students that come from the Almas tradition, with some exceptions. Um, that, you know, But quite a few of them also walk around with an air of superiority like they have the better teaching, like a, a cut above everybody else's pedestrian sort of teachings. And uh, I think that the Enneagram itself is not yet known to a degree that we can permit ourselves the luxury of uh, being adamant about which part of it is truly verified and perfect and uh, should be canonized as unchangeable and which part of it is still a work in progress. I think most of it's still a work in progress because we have not zeroed in on the true essence of what an Enneagram type is. We have aspects of it, but not the real kernel. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. You, 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 you really are... And, and and I consider you this one of the the sort of most astute and, and incredible sort of historians of this modern movement, and um, your life's work attests to that and, and gives you the credibility I think to to sort of position yourself in that way. As you look back, what what do you sort of anticipate or what do you see when you imagine where this is going? I mean, looking back, what hence have you been able to gather up to sort of predict? what you might be able to see as you look forward? Well, I think, I think that... Um, well, my dream would have been to find a physiological connection to mental uh, personality traits, to be able to verify something, either through DNA, blood type, um, through, through physio uh, you know, morphopsychological markings in the face or elsewhere. There has to be something. There have been studies done with brain waves. There have been studies done with the dermatoglyphics of fingerprints. There's a doctor in um, in Colombia. He did uh, a lot of work. They they isolated the three centers: the head, the heart, and the gut center. And they did a real good amount of work on defining what kind of fingerprint markings each center represents. So 
So that is one way that is physical and non-intrusive. Um, a verification system that would be physical, non-intrusive, and um, could have a permanent record would be ideal to boost the Enneagram types into mainstream. I mean, it would be unheard of that we can, uh, we can have a physical correlation to character traits that is clearly distinguishable. But that would be, you know, that has not yet happened. Graphologically, for example, graphology, which uh, is, let's say, the science of our impulses that are depending on millions or thousands of muscular contractions of cells and nerves in the body to produce a certain flow of movement in the hand that reflect that is reflected in the handwriting, for example, there have been a lot of there has been a lot of good work done. Um, Claudio Garibaldi, another Italian, a very good graphologist, Usha Mullen, um, an Indian uh, graphologist who I think lives in England most of the time, and um, there have been there have been quite a few people who have done it with graphology. There has been um, um, there has been research done with brain waves, and uh, they found uh, which 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 parts of the brain are most active in which type, and brain chemistry, serotonin, penopinephrine, dopamine, stuff like that. So. With blood type, I don't know what the studies have been, have been, but I think that sooner or later, we will stumble onto something that is a direct correlation to Enneagram type. And um, that's what I'm looking for. And hmm. we are doing um, um, Frederick Kone, the guy who works for the European Union, and he's often in the Eastern European countries. He's a real good organizer, and uh, he has started a group that is doing scientific research, and he's trying to collect scientific material that comes from here or there. And I have a feeling that um, we have a good chance of getting a whole slew of new information from what used to be the Eastern Bloc countries. And... Anyway, that that would be my my dream, and in, in the meantime, you know, I'm open to anything that comes up that uh, brings us a step further. And I've seen many, many, many steps further, especially not so much saying that we have achieved something that is really um, the final cat's meow, but we have debunked quite a few other things that were holding us back in the past. For instance, that um, the Enneagram type is something that you're trying to get rid of in order to be an evolved human being. You have to renege your type. You have to dump it somehow. That idea turned out not to be correct because you can't become a nothing while you are in the relative field of existence. So you have to function and you have to be something. So the characteristics that we have are obligatory. And what we're talking about with the Enneagram only is that these characteristics have certain archetypal uh, groups, compartments, mainly nine of them. And that would correspond with, with many ancient systems of wisdom schools. For example, um, Jyotish astrology that has its origin something like five or 6,000 years ago, and it is one of the first recorded in writing systems in the world. And they're talking about the importance of um, three and nine, about those groupings. Uh, we use a numerological system like numbers, one to nine. And uh, we, should, we should eventually find a confirmation that uh, there is a way of defining those, uh, those structures that, are have, that have organized human beings and the universe. Apparently, everything works by the same rules, and uh, I think scientists are little by little arriving to some. They're, ex 
they will be studying DNA, I suppose. They will be finding DNA traits. They will be finding wh uh, whatever. Anyway, that's something that um, is up in the air still. Hmm. Because nothing is conclusive. Yeah. So this has been super interesting. And um, like I said, I love, love, love um, the history. I, I love just to kind of pick your mind about what you're thinking about. And, and I love it when you sort of pick some of these ideas up and, and examine and interrogate them. Would wonder if, if, if you're open to having a little bit of a conversation about yourself and, and your own story. Right, because, yeah, because uh, another thing, uh, aside from these uh, convoluted uh, uh, ideas, in the practical field, the Enneagram, even as is now, without having the scientific background and all that stuff that uh, we could add on as time goes on, it has an enormous effect on, an enormously positive effect on the ability to have meaningful relationships. Also, a good, good effect on understanding other people uh, in the sense that you don't blame people uh, for malice when they exhibit a characteristic that they can't help, that is part of their type. And in a marriage, it's particularly important because uh, in the marriage, when you have a power, power play, uh, husband, wife, etc. There, there, there are some or, or children and parents or whatever the relationship may be. If they're at odds, they're butting heads, and if they can understand how much of it is type related and how much of it is uh, laziness of not wanting to change or whatever. So that is what fascinated me in the beginning, and I found that. Um, it spared me a lot of grief in life by being able to detect type, in, uh, type influences in a person and not blame them uh, for, for, for being negligent, lazy or malicious or whatever when they couldn't do anything else or interpret something. Like somebody who always seems to be angry, maybe they're not really angry at you they could be just outraged at the world. Or somebody who seems to be indifferent to you, maybe they're simply introverted and they don't ignore you specifically, whereas they would be very warm and cuddly with someone else. So to make a distinction between what is an original trait of a person and the behavior of that person, to know the difference is extremely useful in a relationship. And that, to me, was the, the biggest merit and the biggest uh, uh, gift of the Enneagram. And that goes also for, let's say you do a spiritual practice. Uh, let's say you're trying to meditate. And you are one of those types whose, fly, uh, whose mind is like a butterfly or a monkey in a tree hopping from branch to branch. You have that kind of neurotic energy. And you think that it is something that... that um, is a huge defect of yours and you're trying to squelch it somehow to calm down against your own nature and you would be battling it and losing the battle because your, your inner nature is probably stronger than whatever effort you can muster. And if that, is, if that is the case and you understand, for example, that, okay, if my mind is like a monkey, all right, then the kind of job that I would be good at is... Uh, coordinating, multiple, uh, multitasking, and so on. So if you put your attention then on multitasking, suddenly you find that what you used to think is your flaw. Now you can use it as if it was your strength. And you can be a lot happier and uh, more fulfilled from that. And the Enneagram is a good tool in order to discover what it is, um, that uh, what the parameters are, within which you have the power to change yourself. So can you talk about that a little bit? Can you talk about how you've used the Enneagram in, in your own spirituality, how you've worked with the Enneagram to sort of nurture that, that aspect of who you've become over the years? Well, um, first of all, in relationships, in my, uh, um, let's say, my first marriage, 
I was, uh, I was, uh, I, I had a belief that uh, it is what we want to do and what we try to do and what we succeed or fail at that will be determining how the relationship will continue or end up. And uh, I, fu- I found that uh, when, uh, when, when I found out my type, in the beginning I thought I was a five, but the, it's still a hit type. Now, now I, you know, let's say I'm a type seven, so I would be one of those that goes from thing to thing. And my wife at the time was a type four, and uh, the four and the seven, once we started to understand what we were, we were more forgiving of who we were, and we were not demanding of the other to be different than what they were. And so it seemed to be a lesser sin to be yourself. And um, also it gave me a feeling of uh, feeling less excluded in the world because I could see people that I used to disagree with completely. I would write them off as idiots. Say, oh God, this person is so stupid, you know, to hell with them, you know, whatever. And and then realizing that a lot of that's what I considered stupidity was actually a type that was alien to me, that was not my type, but I could see the viability of it that other people could make uh, something really good out of that same type. And I realized, I began to realize more and more that, um, like, like I mentioned before, a bird needs two wings to fly, a left and a right one, that if you think that the one of them is right and the other one is wrong, then you have a problem. Then you will not be able to understand people the way one should. You should be able to not only tolerate, but you should be able to understand where somebody of totally opposing views is coming to those views and still can be right in their own head. And you are not superior because you think you're more right. You're just different. So these are, uh, this, this was helped very much by the Enneagram in my life in all fields. Listening to politics, um, evaluating people, also in the diagnostic aspect of uh, working with the health of people, as I was, I used to do visual diagnosis, like well, look at the face, and then see markings of physical um, problems. Let's say you have a face with a red bulbous nose and capillaries busted uh, uh, on your cheeks, and that would be an indicator of emphysema, or big black rings under the eyes, etc. That could be a kidney dysfunction, a stagnation of blood. You know, so so things like this, or certain wrinkles and certain traits, um, all these things have a meaning because I think we are an organism that is a totality of things, and everything in us expresses exactly who we are: our voice, our smell, the timber of our voice, the you know, our hair, our nails, our DNA our cells, our blood type, etc. All of that is connected and it is part of a unified system. So what we're trying to do is um, we're finding ways of getting deeper and deeper and more specific into that system in order to know each other. That's the learning process we have throughout our lives. So I think that the, the Enneagram in that sense, it has its role to play. It is not an absolute role. You can't uh, use the Enneagram as a one-size-fits-all system that will answer all your questions in life. But it, it, it will answer certain questions better than any other system. So that is so, sort of the conclusion uh, that I would be coming to. But that is, that is something that you can say about every system. Hmm. Hmm. Let me ask you this. What do you think the... Um for for folks who are listening, and 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 of course, all this is is just so fascinating, and 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 you really do have a way of um, looking back on on twenty five years of, of of these big ideas, and and trying to, and you have this ability to connect them to to sort of everyday um, life scenarios. 
What do you think the the, the most helpful way for people to work with their Enneagram type is now? Given everything that we've learned about this tradition, given the way of of ideas and content and and books that are out there, what's the the most practical sort of urgent today, let's get on this and and let's get started with it? Well, um, I think we should start with with acknowledging that uh, we have a lot to learn and that everything that we assume, uh, we should always... uh, I would say there's one trait that uh, we should be very careful never to lose, which is uh, always to consider the possibility that we could be wrong about something, whatever it is. So if we can maintain that in our minds, okay, then, uh, then we can look at everything. For instance, your book, The Spiritual Enneagram, is, uh, is uh, I, th- I think, one of the the best manuals there is about the Enneagram, the way it should be approached, because you approach it with an open mind, you look at all the systems, and uh, and you can see value in all the systems, and that's what it is. There is value in all the systems, but they're not all equal, because some systems shine in a particular area a little better than, for instance, uh, Richard Rohr, his description of the type seven hit, um, you know, was an aha moment for me reading it because I think it is the best one I ever read by anybody. So, but I didn't have the same feeling about some of the other types, but seven happens to be my type, you know, so I recognized it and that was extremely deep and a, and, and a very thoughtful description that he had and not one word too many or too few. So, um, you can find nuggets. Uh, you know, it's 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 like mining. I mean, you move a lot of dirt and then you find gold nuggets in it. You take the gold nuggets wherever you find them. So the Enneagram has a, a fair share of gold nuggets and you should be able to listen to all points of view of the Enneagram and you select and you pick and you find everything that uh, is useful to you and in different times, it will be different things, and some things that initially seemed useless, later on you discover they were very valuable. So uh, I, th- I think the attitude of openness and the attitude of uh, considering the possibility that you could be wrong about something, those are the two things that have to go together. You have to remain open at all times. And um, other than that, I think that uh, you should also be open to other systems. And there is no system that contradicts, per se, the Enneagram. There's nothing that would invalidate it. But there are supplementary additional systems that could help you understand the Enneagram in a deeper way. For Well, the examples are many. I mean, you know, every system has a, some area where they really, really shine. And then what people do mostly with the system, they go out into the weeds, into the twigs, far away from the trunk and the main branches of the system. And the further they go, the less it resembles that system that they started out with, and the closer it comes to other trees that are standing nearby. So if you go too much in the weeds with the Enneagram, you begin to enter the territory where other systems are maybe more efficient and better at. So you should know what the limitations are of the Enneagram. Not that they're, you know, specific and concrete limitations, but you should know that um, we have a life experience that is based on our entire life of, of having billions of impressions from morning till evening that have accumulated and they formed us into who we are. Some of those impressions have been Enneagram-related. We have read up on it. We've went to courses. We've done this, that, and other. But it is still a very, very small part of your total knowledge of life. And you should not uh, make it the main knowledge of your life if it was just a minor uh, or, or, or a small part of your brain that was, uh, let's say, infected by it or infused by it, rather. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. You should not re- yeah, you should not replace the trunk for a twig or the fruit at the end of a branch. Yeah. You you should never forget that. So uh, as far as meditation and spirituality and those things are concerned, I th- I would say that we should look at traditional systems that have established themselves for thousands of years or hundreds of years, etc., that have been time-tested, and they've had a string of saints and uh, and prophets backing it up through personal experience that has been uh, found valid over the centuries. So use those systems that are trustworthy. And the Enneagram is, in the beginning phases, it's still a young system, so uh, uh, it is an extremely uh, beautiful system, but it is, uh, it's like a child. It has a lot of potential and a lot of energy and a lot of, um, you know, it's an excellent system. But um, I mean, it is at a stage where we find it, where it still has a lot of growth. There's a lot of possibilities still. Hmm. Is there anything you want to say? Is there any other questions you want me to ask you? Are there are there a couple things that you think would be really important to try to capture before we we wrap this up? Well, uh, um, I would say that um, some of the best material that I have seen that has um, that has been submitted by authors was from people who have had personal experiences, and they were describing. And you can see, you can feel when you read it, you know that it is. it has the ring of truth to it because it was actually lived. Anything that has been actually lived will resonate with the reader better than something that was theorized and, and um, sort of uh, composed in one's mind as a possibility. So I would encourage people who have a really deep experience with the Enneagram to write it down and share it with others because those things wake up a similar experience in others or the memory if they had something like that themselves. And um, if something is not worth publishing, it won't get published. They don't have to be afraid of making fools of themselves because they have written something that will be rejected and they'll be laughed at. No, I think um, anything that works, if people find something that really worked for them, usually it has a lot of truth to it. And it would be nice to capture that and put it on paper or put it in a PDF, whichever mm-hmm. way people subscribe to the paper. So I would encourage that. And I would also um, encourage the thinking that... Um, for personal growth, it is exceptional moments in your life that form triggers and turning points that give you something. And they can come from most unexpected and usually do come most uh, come from uh, unexpected sources and unexpected directions. If you sit down with books of this and that and you say, I want to achieve such and such insights, uh, it doesn't usually work that way. Those insights may come, but they come when the time is ripe and they come at their own, you know, at their own time. So I don't know what to say about this. You know, everybody operates differently, but I think that um, uh, when we look back at our lives, we can detect seminal moments in our history that made us change course. And when we look at, why they happen most of the time or half the time, we can't really figure out why. So we have to just take it as it comes sometimes. So study the Enneagram, and when you have deep insights, etc., they will be coming. They will be coming, and uh, if you have a good idea, share it with others. I think I agree with Claudio uh, Naranjo with that, that uh, um, according to the Buddhist system, you have Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, they call it. Buddha is the teacher, Dharma is the teaching, and Sangha is the group of practitioners that are supporting each other. So we need all three equally. And if we don't have them, then we have a problem. Because, I mean, there will be a gap. 
So um, make sure that you have all, all three, that you choose the right kind of teaching, and then you have to be very critical of which teacher you want to follow, and also who your friends are. And when you have that down, then you probably have done all you can do, and then you just uh, need the factor of time as you grow, as you go on in life, and you may, you know, you, you know that, that's probably your best chance of going forward as fast as you can. Hmm. Uh-huh. That's great. But let me say this, Jack, I, I am really, really um, thankful for you. You really have been a huge support. You, you've been a huge source of encouragement over the last few years. Um, I appreciate you always staying and, and being curious. Um, I appreciate you being a, a constant and a lifelong learner. Um, it's really a good example for all of us. And, and I appreciate you just being an honest conversation partner. So I want to, I want to thank you for, for the gift of your friendship. And I want to thank you for, for, for really the gift of this conversation. Well, thank you, Chris too. And, uh, um, I really like your work, and I think you are the best person who could do this project. I can't think of anybody better, because you are the only one that I know of that can keep his ego out of it and do something that is responsible for the greater community. Hmm. So thank you very much. Yeah, appreciate that. So there it is. I, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jack. Like I said earlier, I, I could just sit and, and listen to, to him talk for hours and hours. His 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 mind is is brilliant. What he can remember and what he can connect effortlessly is just remarkable. And and really, he's a wealth of uh, of knowledge that he's ingested into kind of understanding as a servant to the larger Enneagram community. I, I have so much respect and admiration for him, and I have so much respect and admiration for the work that he's done to to catalog, to capture, to, to sort of archive the evolving history of this community through the Enneagram Monthly. And so if you don't subscribe yet to the Enneagram Monthly, then you can do that online at enneagram-monthly.com. This journal, this periodical, this sort of professional peer review publication comes out in in, in print form or as a, as a digital PDF. And uh, I, I just think it's one of the best the best resources available. It, it, it just keeps showing us where the conversation is evolving. It keeps showing us where the conversation's going. What I love about Jack is he gives the sort of old school established professional space in there to sort of float out new ideas. And, and he gives sort of newer voices on the ascendancy and, and folks who are kicking around things that maybe nobody's considered yet a chance to land on those pages. And, and so it's always it always reflects the best of Jack's curiosity. I, I think it's always full of um, provocative and, and imaginative content. And, and I think if you want to see where these conversations are, are, are leading, this is the place to do that. So thanks so much for joining me again. Thanks for, 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 for checking out this, this episode with Jack. And uh, we can't wait to have you back for, for what's up next. This is Chris Hewartz with Enneagram Mapmakers. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Enneagram Mapmakers. Special thanks to Ryan O'Neill for the gorgeous, as always, sleeping at last music, and the gifted and talented genius that is Corey Pig for producing the show. And lastly, the sweet voice you hear helping at the beginning of the show is my dear friend Edith Moore, all the way from Christchurch, New Zealand. <laughs>